1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll read verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask you once again to take your word and apply it to our hearts. We trust that this book is not just any other book. It is breathed out by you, Father, for our instruction our correction, our training, for reproof. Lord, we would ask you, I hope from humble hearts, contrite in spirit, that you would let us live by these words, trusting them to be true and of eternal significance. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, with all of the changes that are happening in the church, uh, visibly changing, we want to take a few weeks and focus our attention on some things that don't change about the church. And to do that, we open God's Word and we look to see what He describes the church to be and to do. We spent some time last week looking at this text, understanding that the church is the household of God. It is the assembly of God's people. It is the place where he displays his presence. And the church also is the church of the living God. We worship a living God, one who is not dead. He is not an idol. He hears us. He lives with us. He dwells in us. And so as the church of the living God, we are to display the fact that we have a living God in our assembling and in our individual lives. And all of these descriptions of the church are given to us so that we would know how to behave, it says in 1 Timothy 3.15, in the household of God. Well, as we continue this line of thinking, we could continue to ask the question, what is distinctive about the church? What is distinctive about it? What is it that distinguishes the church from every other group in the world? Really, another way that you could ask the church is, what do we need to hold fast to in order to remain being the church? What is it that is going to protect us from disintegrating into some amorphous blob of people that has no distinguishing element of it? What is it that is going to keep us safe as a church? What is it that we need to hold Onto and cannot let go of it? What is it that if you were to remove this thing from it, it's like you rip the heart out of the church and all you have is this empty shell, this almost zombie-like body that really has no life to it. The church in many ways reflects 
other communities in our world. We're an assembling of people. In fact, the word church could just be taken to me in a gathering. It's used that way in Acts chapter 19 to refer to an official gathering of a public town meeting. But clearly, we are not just a gathering of some public town meeting. There's something that distinguishes us from that. You could have groups that gather together over common interests, board games or sports, people who get together as fanatics of their favorite sports team on game day, and they gather together. In one sense, you could take the literal definition of church and apply it to them. There's some assemblage of people in a formal way. But we have something that distinctivizes us. What do we possess that no other community possesses? There are synagogues, there are temples, there are mosques. But what do we have that identifies us as the church of the living God, as the household of God, that they do not possess? And it's not to suggest in any way that we're better than them, for it's all of grace. But grace comes to us in a particular way. So there are many things that are, could be said to be unique to the church. There are many things that could, you could say superficially mark us out. They're not even superficially, but things that are deeper. We sing in a way that I think no other group of people sings on this planet. We love one another in ways that really no other group should love on this planet. But those are all kind of radiating out from the center of the thing that marks us out as what we have in common most essentially. All the joys, all the benefits of being a part of the church, including the lovely fellowship meals that we have, including the lovely just conversations that we enjoy, those all radiate out from a common confession that we share. And the confession that we share is compacted in this text, written in verse form or in hymn form. It summarizes a statement of our faith, what we believe to be true. And it is this that sets us apart because you could rip this text out and try to post it on all of the other groups in the world that meet together. And if you were to post that on their door, they would rip it down or just add it to the other things that they would say that they hold. But for us, this is the thing that we write in stone on our doorway into the church. This is what we confess to be true. This is what we have in common Although we may have, in some sense, common or maybe uncommon social views or concerns for society or justice or common friendships or common pursuits, they are all resultant of the basic confession of faith that we share. And this truth that we hold is really what defends us against our prowling enemy. And it's really what draws his attacks as well. Because this confession of faith has to do with really three words. Jesus is Lord. And when you confess that, it gains the attention of the one who hates the fact that Jesus is Lord. 
But it is also the only thing that will hold us to, maintain, to remain a church. Because if you remove that, that Jesus is Lord, and you try to keep all of the infrastructure around it, you're no longer a church. The heart's been ripped out, and you're just a shell of a church. Without this confession, we are no more than a group of people who decide to gather together on Sunday, sing from a book, or do programs together, or eat together. But when we commonly believe that Jesus is Lord, we are the church of the living God and his household. Let me give you, before we jump into this text, a little bit of a a background to why I would say it this way. You can turn to Matthew chapter 16. At this point in Matthew, Jesus has been on his rounds in ministry. He's healed countless people, done countless miracles, displayed his power. He's selected his disciples. And in this moment, he's removed them from the land of Israel and taken them up to Caesarea Philippi, a place of Gentiles and idolatry. And as he removes them from that place of the Israelites, he asks them a question. This is Matthew 16, verse 13. He asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see there that they respond that generally the people have a good impression of who Jesus is. They have some respect for him. They acknowledge him to be on the level of a prophet. But he asks them in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And now something happens in the gospel of Matthew that hasn't happened yet with such clarity. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the first time that a human has confessed Jesus to be the Christ in this kind of a way. And so the apostle Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. That is basically to say that he is the king, not just any king, but God's anointed king, the one that God had promised from the Old Testament scriptures would come, be of the line of David, and rule and reign. He acknowledges Jesus fulfills a particular role in the scriptures, in the plan of God, a role that no one else will fulfill. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not only is the first time that somebody professes Jesus to be the Christ, this is the first time that Jesus discusses or talks about his church. That is to say, his people, the people who assemble in his name, belong to him, worship him, be identified by him. It's his church. But notice the context in which he begins to talk about his church. He's done lots of ministry. 
He's preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's done so many miracles, but he's not talked about his church, his people, until somebody professes him to be the Christ. And so it shows us that if you remove Jesus being the Christ from the church, you have no church. This is the essential doctrine that we need to hold to in order to belong to the church, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. There's a lot of debate about that. Who's it talking about? Is it talking about Peter? Is it talking about the confession? I think we can at least acknowledge that these two, Peter and the confession, have to go hand in hand. If Peter had not confessed this, Jesus would not say this, that he would build his church on this rock. It has to go hand in hand. It's not Peter apart from the confession. It's not really the confession apart from Peter. It's a person who confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And as we make the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, we hold up the truth that is the center of the church. Again, no other group on this planet is going to hold that up. This is a distinctive of the church. And so if we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll see Paul make this extravagant claim about the church. He's already described the church in 3.15 as the household of God, the church of the living God, and then he gives a third description of it. He calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. You know what a pillar is? A pillar holds something up. You may not know what a buttress is, and that's in part because that word can be a little ambiguous. Is it the foundation, or is it a, a buttress which goes to support a pillar or kind of hold it up? Either way, it's a structural element that has significant roles to play in the upholding of the truth. The church is the pillar of the truth. you think about that comment with me for a few moments, that's a significant one. The church is a pillar of the truth. This is assuming, and it's worth mentioning in our day and age, that there is truth. There is truth. There is objective truth. It's not my truth versus your truth versus his truth or her truth. No, there's truth. It's not my truth. It may only be my truth insofar as I believe it to be true. But if I'm the one who defines it as truth, then it's not truth. Truth has to be true whether I accept it or not. Sometimes we get packages delivered to our doorstep. We don't know what's in the package. And I could say all day, inside that package are socks. And you open it up, and it's bananas doesn't make the bananas socks because I said they were socks. They're still bananas, and they're bananas before I claim them to be socks, and they're going to be bananas after I claim them to be socks. They're always bananas. There is truth that pervades this world that is true whether we acknowledge it or not. 
it always holds fast. We live in a universe of reality and universal absolutes. We live in a society that likes to make truth slippery. But when truth gets slippery, we all pay because there becomes this ambiguity of right and wrong, truth and falsehood. Thank God that we have a God who declares what is right and wrong, who declares what is true and false, and it is always true if he says so, and it is always false if he says so, and it is always right if he says so, and it's always wrong if he says so. That's the kind of God that we have. He is a perfect God who does not change his mind. He has set his ways and his standard. And not only that, but as we come into gray areas that may be difficult for us as humans to discern what is true and what is false, we have a God who sees everything and knows every detail of every circumstance and knows exactly what happened, not only on the outside, but on the inside of people's hearts. And so he can discern who was right and who was wrong. So truth exists, and this matters. And this truth, at least a particular truth that's being described here, is supported or held up by the church. And this is a bit counterintuitive. Because as you think about who would it be in this world who supports the truth, you would think it would be perhaps the largest government in the world or the ones with the largest military in the world, or the geniuses of the world, or the world's greatest scientists and greatest minds. But the people who hold up the truth in this world are the people in this room. And I don't mean to insult you, but this is not the assembly of the greatest people in the world. (laughs) Not the smartest, not the brightest, not the wealthiest, not the most powerful. And yet we here are the people that are called to hold up the truth that matters most of all in this world. We are those people. How do you hold up or support truth? It's not by inventing it. It's not by declaring it to be truth. Again, we are not the definers of truth. It is always true, whether we acknowledge it or not. You support the truth by recognizing it as true and believing it as true and treasuring it as true. You support the truth by recognizing it as truth. We live in a world that is in a battle over ideas. If you turn on the news to one channel, you get information interpreted by that channel, and you turn it on to another channel, you get information interpreted by that channel, and if you turn on a third one, you get a third perspective, and a fourth, and a fifth, and so on, and on, and on. We live in an information age where information is everywhere, and truth is elusive. You can hear all the same facts, and come to completely different conclusions about those facts in this world. It's gone on in an incredible way these past few years, but it's always going on. But what we do as the church is we hear the facts about Jesus Christ, and we hold on to them as true, 
that he is the son of the living God, that he is the Christ. We acknowledge them to be true. We recognize it as true. We believe them to be true. And we live our lives on the basis of them being true. How much of your life would change if you stopped believing that Jesus is the Christ? If your life would get turned upside down by that shift, that's a good thing. If it wouldn't change at all, and your life would run along more or less as normal, that's a bad thing. You have not embraced Jesus as the Christ in the world-shattering, revolutionary kind of way it actually affects our lives. And so, as the church, we are called to be the pillar and buttress of the truth by recognizing it as true, believing it as true, and in fact, if you don't believe it is true, you're not a part of the church, and so you don't hold it up. People may call us crazy or fanatics or fundamentalists or naive or old-fashioned or archaic or delusional. That shouldn't come as a surprise because we live in a world that's in a battle over the truth. And we have an enemy who hates the truth that Christ is Lord. And as the church, we are called to hold on to it with all our heart. And as we do it, we are the people in the world that are holding up that truth that Jesus is Lord. So the church is the pillar of the truth, and the truth that the church supports is the truth about its Savior. Again, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, and then it's no accident that he goes on to say in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He begins to just lay out what is the truth that we uphold. What is the truth that we support? And the truth that we support is a confession, and it's a great one. Paul says it's mega. We use that word great for all kinds of things. How was breakfast this morning? It was great. Yeah, how was your night last night? It was great. In fact, the other day I was doing some work at home, and I I made a cut in the door that was wrong And then I got it right afterwards, but it left this big gash in the door. And my wife comes up to me and said, oh, you did a great job. (laughs) And she wasn't being sarcastic either. But Paul says, great. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Mega. It's huge. What we are holding to and what we hold to is the mystery of of godliness. When you hear that word mystery in the New Testament, you have to put out from your minds that it's some sort of detective novel that you need to solve. It's not that kind of mystery. In fact, it was something that was once hidden, but now revealed. It's a mystery that has been made known, and the mystery that's been made known is the mystery or the revelation of godliness. Godliness being true living before God. What it really means to have a life before God that is substantial and meaningful and honoring to Him. In my Bible reading, I've been reading through the Old Testament and I'm in the book of Kings. Um, In those books, 
if you've read them, you know that it kind of is this tennis match back and forth between these kings of Israel and Judah, and it just describes the kings from Solomon on to the very end when Judah is exiled, and it goes back and forth detailing, describing the lives of these kings of Israel. And it's an important book, and you can turn back there for a moment. I think 2 Kings 15 is where we'll land. It's an important book, not because it is um, just the annals of the kings of Israel, and so we've got a historical record of what they did. No, it's a very selective history of the kings of Israel. Israel, of course, was selected by God to be a nation through whom he would manifest his ways and wisdom to the world. As they kept his laws, they were going to be called to be a light to the nations and show the wisdom of God to the nations in the way that they lived. And as the nation matured, or you could even say immatured, they eventually got a king, Saul, and then came David, And the king was obviously a very important person in the life of the people. In a sense, his spiritual fidelity to God or lack thereof was a barometer of sorts for the whole of the nation. If the king was doing good, the nation generally followed. If the king was doing bad, the nation generally followed. And so you read the accounts of these kings in Israel and Judah, and it goes back and forth from king to king. And really, although you could describe a lot of their political conquests and military conquests, it doesn't really get into that. The basic summary of the kings is what was their relationship to God like? And in the the end, you get a summary that describes it like this. 2 Kings 15, verse 23, describing Pekahiah, though I could have picked anyone. It says in the 15th, 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. And it describes very little else about this king, although you could probably fill books about what he did in those two years. All it wants us to know is he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as these kings were intended to lead the people, the chosen people of Israel, the basic summary is whether they did right or did what was wrong. And if you read the book of Kings, most of them do wrong. The leader of the nation who represents the spirituality and fidelity of, God, of them to the, their God basically does wrong. If you just look in 2 Kings 16, just across, just the next chapter over, you get the description of Ahaz, King Ahaz. Let me give a little summary of this king. Verse 2, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Verse 3, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Verse 8, 
Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. That was not a good idea. He took treasures from the temple and sent them to an enemy of the people in order to basically buy this nation off. Verse 10, he saw an altar in a foreign nation, and he builds a model and sells it to his priest so that priest could build an altar to a false god. And eventually he goes to remove the things from the temple to the Lord and replace them with pagan artifacts. And he just leads the people in a disarray. At the end, Ahaz is evaluated And he had done what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So for this nation that was chosen by God to be a godly nation, to walk in his ways and his statutes, his commands, and to be led by a man who is to represent before that nation to God a life of fidelity to God, you could ask, where is the godliness? Where is a life really lived unto God that matters? Well, you look in the book of Kings, and you don't find it. Every king stumbles and falls to some degree, some more than others. And so if you're in Israel and you're able to kind of span their whole history, you're waiting for some king who will come and do good all the time and be faithful unto God. This was the intention of God for the nation of Israel to let his ways be known to the world through Israel. But instead, like with Ahaz, they took the way of the idolatrous nations. So what of godliness? What of true religion, true piety, true devotion, and worship to God? Israel's problem were the kings and the people who followed them. It was sin, the rebellion against God. And you know the layout of the Bible because you go through the rest of the Old Testament and a lot of it's judgment for the people. And then you come to the New Testament and the person who shows up on the scene is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, who's welcomed into this world by those wise men as the king of the Jews. And with the advent of Jesus of Nazareth, you have the revelation of godliness of true godliness in the Son of God. So back to to 1 Timothy, when he tells us that we confess this great confession, the mystery of godliness, basically what Paul is saying is we are the ones who acknowledge that finally there is somebody who has come, who has fulfilled God's ways, who has lived a true life unto God. This is the essence of our confession as a church. We confess Jesus Christ. And the rest of this text is this hymn, this early confession of poetic or poetry in poetic form, this confession. It begins with the word he, and that's the one that really anchors this whole thing. Every other verb flows out from this. He was manifested. He was vindicated. He was seen. He was proclaimed. He was believed. He was taken up in glory. It's all about this he, and of course, it's referring to Jesus Christ. 
And so our confession is really Christ. We confess Christ. It gives us six ways that we confess Christ or six things about Christ that we confess. The first one is that he was manifested in the flesh. He came in the flesh. The beginning of the Gospel of John was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you jump down to verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. He took on flesh, this pre-existent one, the Son of God who had always existed. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. There he describes Jesus as the one who is from the beginning, who is the life. When poetry is written, it says a lot with a little. So when it says he was manifested in the flesh, you could just go on and say he was human, but he's saying a lot more than that. It's saying that we are confessing someone who is preexistent, who has always lived, who is the life, who is the word, who took on flesh, the eternal son of God, became man. We confess the virgin birth. We confess the true humanity of Christ. We confess his true deity. And we confess that he really walked this earth, that people sat with him, heard him, touched him, saw him. This is so important because it distinguishes true from false religion. 1 John 4, 2 through 3 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In the Old Testament, you see God manifests himself certain times, he reveals himself in a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire as he leads the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. He revealed himself to Moses in that burning bush that wasn't consumed. Sometimes you see the angel of the Lord come and go in the Old Testament. But now, in the, with the coming of Christ, with the advent of Christ, you see God take on flesh. And he was manifested among us. The reason he took on flesh Again, this is saying so much more than just he was human. The reason he took on flesh, Paul elaborates in Romans 8, 3 through 4. The reason he took on human flesh and not angelic flesh, not animal flesh, but full humanity. As Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God sent his son as a man born of woman so that he could take the place of sinners. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So when we confess this great confession, we confess that Jesus, who is the preexistent Son of God, took on flesh, dwelt among us, died in our place. And then the next clause of this confession is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. It's basically saying that he was proven right by the Spirit to demonstrate that one is morally right by the Spirit. Might be worth your time just to turn back to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. While Jesus was a man of the Spirit, in that he lived according to the Spirit his whole earthly existence. Nowhere do we see the role of the Spirit in his life more profoundly than at his resurrection, because in his resurrection he is declared not just to be the Son of God, which he's always been, he's always been the Son of God, but in his resurrection after he had endured the shame of the cross, and he's now raised to life again, he is declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness. It is the Spirit, when Jesus is raised from the dead, who reveals that Jesus is no mere man, but he is the Son of God with power. And as Jesus puts it in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus' life was proven to be right when he raised from the dead. The worthiness of his life was shown as he was moved from that state of humiliation at the cross and burial in the tomb to a position that no man has ever had before to be raised by God according to the Spirit in power to take on the full role that he's always really had, but now to exercise it with all authority, the Son of God who has at his control all of heaven and all of earth is displayed when he was raised or vindicated by the Spirit. His life was shown to be worthy. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, is the third statement that is made about our Christ. He was seen by angels, which I would put it this way, that his life, death, and resurrection is cosmic insignificance. It's cosmic insignificance. The life of Jesus is bookended by angels. If you come to any Christmas service, you hear about angels. If you hear, come to an Easter service, you hear about angels. Because when Jesus was born, you remember the heavenly host was there in the skies announcing his birth to the shepherds. And at the tomb, 
those dazzling angels stood there to announce the resurrection of Jesus. And even when he ascends into heaven and those disciples are staring up into the sky as Jesus is enveloped in that cloud, all of a sudden they hear this voice of an angel standing next to them. Why are you looking up there? He's coming back just as he said. And so the whole of Jesus' life is really surrounded by these, these angels. He was seen by them. And it is to show that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is cosmic in significance. 1 Peter 3.22 says that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Revelation 5.8 describes for us the Lamb who's in the center of heaven and the angels and the elders surrounding the Lamb sing a new song and say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And all of heaven cries out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is exalted above every name. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1 that after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this is part of our confession, who the Jesus is that we call Lord. Seen by angels, he's proclaimed among the nations. You could say that his life, death, and resurrection leads to an expansiveness in his salvation that he provides. And we move from sight to sound. He was seen by angels, and then he's proclaimed among the nations. There's many who have sought to conquer the world. You know Napoleon, you got Hitler, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, Genghis Khan. But here we have a king who was vindicated, whose life was worthy, who's seen by angels, worshipped by angels. And now he doesn't come to conquer the world with an army, Right now, he is sending out his messengers to proclaim salvation in his name to all nations because his life is worthy of salvation of people from every tribe. And so his name is proclaimed among the nations. From the very start of the book of Acts and the rest of the whole book details this, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus' name is worthy of being proclaimed to the ends of the earth because he offers salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as he is proclaimed, he is believed. That's the fifth statement. He's believed on in the world. The purpose of the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus came to die and rise again, 
is so that he would be believed. And as he's believed, the church expands and people are saved. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And you know the verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so as Jesus' worthy life is proclaimed to the nations, he is to be believed, and he is. For the elect of all the nations are being gathered together now as people go out and proclaim his name, and while not the whole world turns to him, people from every tribe and tongue and nation turn in faith to him and believe him and honor him by accepting him as Lord of their lives and Savior from their sins. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then finally, he was taken up in glory. One of the things I like to ask kids when I teach them is, where is Jesus right now? And they usually get it right. They don't say he's at the store. They usually say, He's in heaven, and they're absolutely right. When Jesus concluded his earthly ministry after he was raised, he ascended into heaven. He ascended bodily into heaven, and he still is there. He's at the right hand of God. John 16, 28, Jesus says, even before he died, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In John 17, 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And again, Hebrews 1, 3, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we confess Christ as Lord... We're saying so much more than three words. And as we make this confession of six statements, it's so much more than just a poem. It declares that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, came to earth to suffer and die and be raised again to life, to be risen to a position of prominence over every living thing. And as his name is proclaimed among the nations, people believe in him and are saved, and they worship and glorify Jesus as the Son of God, who even now sits at the right hand of God the Father and is coming again. These are the ABCs of our faith and our confession. While they are scandalous, they are not unbelievable. They are to to be believed. And each one of these are doctrines that the church has held now for 2,000 years. This is the core of who we are. We confess this great mystery of godliness, of a godly life, of the king who has come, who actually obeyed God, lived for him, and purchased salvation for his people. And so are we like Peter, who confessed that Jesus is the Christ, If we do, we uphold the essential truth of the church, the doctrine that cannot be taken away from us 
For if it is, we're no longer the church. We get parking lots striped. We put chairs instead of pews. But we still confess Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed to us your own Son, the mystery of godliness. We confess him as our Lord who has come in the flesh, whose life was vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection. He sits above angels who see him and bow and worship. He's proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world. And we know that he was taken up into glory and sits at your right hand. Oh, Father, may we not waver from this confession. And may we see in an increasing way how this truth of your Son affects every detail of our life, everything we say and do and think. And may we wait eagerly for his coming once again and be ready for it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.